Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org seminars to find a seminar in a city near you. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. My guest today is John W. Fisher, Ph.D. P.E., Dr. Fisher earned a bachelor's degree from Washington University and master's and PhD degrees from Lehigh University, all in civil engineering. During his 45-year career, Dr. Fisher, the former Joseph T. Stewart Professor of Civil Engineering at Lehigh University, has examined most of the major failures of steel structures in America in the last four decades. Throughout his career, Dr. Fisher has focused his research on structural connections, fatigue behavior of welded components, fracture analysis of steel structures, and the behavior and performance of steel bridges. He has been published in more than 250 journals, books, and magazines. In 1986, Dr. Fisher founded the Advanced Technology for Large Structural Systems Center at Lehigh University. Dr. Fisher is the recipient of many awards from many different societies and organizations, including being elected to the National Academy of Engineering in 1986 and receiving the John Fritz Medal in 1999, which is given annually by representatives of five of the world's premier engineering societies. Dr. Fisher has been a longtime member of AISC's Specification Committee, was awarded AISC's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2001, and in 2006, he was awarded AISC's Gerhard Hajir Award for Excellence in Education. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for taking the time to agree to talk to me today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. So you're originally from Scott City, Missouri, and I live in St. Louis, and I have to say I've never heard of, of Scott City. What part of the state is that in? Well, it's in southeast Missouri, about 10 miles south of Cape Girardeau. So you did your undergrad work at, at Washington University in St. Louis? Actually, I attended Cape State for a year. Oh, okay. And then I went to Marion College in Indiana for a half year. And then I went into the military at that point. Oh, okay. As an enlisted man, went through basic training and then to officer's candidate school at the Corps of Engineers in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. They no longer have such a separation, but back in the uh, 50s when this occurred. Yeah, so before you, you went to WashU, you were a second lieutenant. That's correct. I had got commissioned uh, in, uh, I entered the military in 1951 mm -hmm. and was commissioned after attending OCS. And so in 52, then I went through the training and went overseas in uh, January of 53 and spent one year in Germany, at which time the, uh, as a second lieutenant in the 4th Engineering Combat Battalion, which was assigned to the 4th Infantry Division. So our mission was to guard the Fulda Gap from mainly uh, Russia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> that was the Cold War at that point. Well, the Korean War came to a halt at that point, and I had a choice to stay in the military or to resign my commission to go back to school, which I elected to do. Because I, had a I was actually married at that point. I had married in 1952 in October and went overseas uh, in January. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and so when I came back, my wife, Nelda, she, she was working for the FBI in the St. Louis office. When I returned then, Washington University was a convenient school, and so I enrolled in Washington University in, in January of 1954. So how long were you actually in the military? Uh, three years. Three years. So you came back and went to Wash U and got your bachelor's degree there. Did you always know that you wanted to be an engineer? I did. Initially, I thought I might have wanted to be a chemical engineer, mm -hmm. 
but when I got involved in chemistry it didn't appeal to me too much. <laughs> and after going into the military, being a second lieutenant in, a, in an engineering combat unit, I liked that type of application of building bridges and other things, which is one of the things we did in training. So I knew at that point I wanted to be a civil engineer when I returned then to the States. So then after WashU, you went on to Lehigh University for your master's and doctoral degrees, where you were a graduate research assistant to Lynn Beadle. Right. Well, I went from WashU to Lehigh at the encouragement of the faculty of WashU. And Lynn Beadle had come to Washington University to give a talk, and the faculty there thought Lehigh would be a good place to go to. So I had applied to Lehigh and Illinois. I decided to go to Lehigh instead of Illinois at that point. So I went and did my master's degree under Lynn Beadle. And then I left. And I took uh, the position as the assistant bridge engineer at the ASHO Road Test mm -hmm. with the National Academy of Science, working under Dr. Ivan V.S. Mm -hmm. That's how I met Ivan. So I spent three years there, and it was during that interval that I decided uh, I liked to work with bridges because this was a research project, and we had both steel and concrete bridge structures mm -hmm. on the test loops that were in Ottawa, Illinois. Uh, I knew when I took the position that it was not a permanent position. It was a short-term three-year contract because the, the test road was uh, subjected to test trucks driven by the military. That's how it accumulated the cycles of vehicles on both the pavements that were being tested in the road and the bridges. Mm -hmm. And so the steel bridges uh, developed fatigue cracks, and that became one of my primary interests. So when the test road terminated, which was in um, 1961, then Ivan actually wanted me to go to Illinois because he had been a professor at Illinois. Mm -hmm. And in fact, during that course of the time he was at the test road, he was appointed to the AISC specification committee because he was the expert in composite construction. Mm -hmm. He became a member of the specification committee, I believe, in 1960. And so he was involved then in getting the 1961 specification. Now, when I was at Lehigh, prior to joining him, I worked on the plastic design project under Lynn Beadle. Mm -hmm. And that's when I met Ted Higgins, because uh, the problem I was giving was haunched connections, steel haunts connections, and I came up with a solution to that and carried out my experimental work during the summer of 1958. And then I left because I had completed my master's degree and moved to Illinois at that point with my wife, who was pregnant with at the time with our first child after six years. And so at the test road then, I got to know Ivan well. He was primarily a composite and as well his main focus was more on concrete structures at the time. When the project was terminated, he elected to join Bethlehem Steel mm -hmm. as a structural steel engineer and working in a new division they were creating. It essentially was an engineering division in the sales area. When he made that decision, he tried to convince me to go to Illinois, but I decided I didn't want to. And Lynn Beadle wanted me to come back mm -hmm. to work on a doctorate. Mm -hmm and actually to take over the high-strength bolts project that uh, was underway under a colleague that I had met when I was doing my master's degree called in the name of John Rumpf. Mm -hmm. 
John had been a uh, World War II veteran and had come to Lehigh from Drexel University where he was on a faculty to work on doctorate. So when I left in 58, then he started this program in high-strength bolts. Now, actually, Ted Columbus uh, enters this equation because Ted and I reported to Lynn Beadle on the same day at the same time in 1956. Uh, he was a doctoral student and I was a master's student because okay. he already had a master's degree. But we took the same courses mm -hmm. for the two years that I was there. And so when I returned, I returned as a uh, research instructor because it turned out that while I was at the test road, I was exposed to computers and learned how to operate them. It was a Bendix G15. When I arrived at Lehigh, nobody in the civil engineering department had worked with computers yet. Oh, so that was a big advantage. This was in 1961. Mm -hmm. And so I was asked, uh, initially then I taught a course to the undergraduates in computer applications while I was carrying out my research work on high strength bolted connection. So what was it like to work under Lynn Beadle? Well, Lynn was, uh, he didn't have a lot of students, he was more of a manager. Mm -hmm. I was probably, as I recall, I may have been his last doctoral student. Oh, he, really? Because, um, he had, John Rump was one of his students, and he probably had one or two before that. But he was more of a manager making use of people. And so in a t during the course of when I was working on my doctorate is when he made a decision because of the 1961 specifications to prepare a textbook. Mm -hmm on steel structures, so he mobilized essentially either graduate students or faculty to be contributors to that. He was like the managing editor. Mm -hmm. So that's how the first textbook that we prepared on structural steel design came to be. All the senior graduate students, uh, I was one. I wrote the chapter on welded connections at the time. John Rump, who had just left and gone back to Drexel as a professor and finished his degree, he was continuing to work on the bolted joints, mm -hmm. but he was at Drexel at that point. He wrote the chapter on bolted joints. Others, like Sam Herrera, Ted Lambertall, Harold Greensnyder, who joined Bethlehem Steel, Hanson, there must have been 20 of us that were authors of different chapters. Mm -hmm. And Lynn, of course, was involved in those days in uh, stability. Mm -hmm. And so he had prepared the chapter on stability along with Lambertall. And Ted wrote the chapter on beam columns. And so that's how that evolved. You know, Lynn, he was able to draw upon people's talents. That was one of his primary gifts yeah. as a manager of people. He, at the time, then became a member of the AISC Specification Committee. Now, Ted Columbus, when I went back, of course, Ted was finished and had taken a position in the faculty. Oh, okay. In fact, he became chairman of my committee. Lynn was my PhD supervisor. Lynn gave you a lot of leeway. If you were capable of running with the ball, he let you go. And so he let me go, and I ran the high-strength bolted joints and finished my degree then in 64, early 64. One of my graduating colleagues was Max Lay, who also was an author of the book. Uh, he was an Australian. He returned to Australia, went to work with BHP Broken Hill Proprietary Steel. They had their own steel company in those days. Now they're mainly an energy company, but 
So anyway, that's how it, we had an international group. Of course, then I joined the faculty when I finished that year. I was appointed an assistant professor in 1964. I'd been a research instructor prior to that. I was promoted in two years to associate professor and then in 1969 was promoted to full professor. And you stayed at Lehigh. Now I had looked at leaving at times. Ted made the decision to leave in 1965 to go to my alma mater, Washington Was U. Was you? Uh-huh. When I finished my doctorate, I interviewed several places. We had some unique faculty at Lehigh in those days. One was Bruno Thorlop, who taught us a lot about plasticity and steel and the theoretical side. Bob Ketter, who became president of the State University of New York at Buffalo. He left in 1958 when I did. And actually, he was a fellow Missourian. He was an excellent faculty member, and he started the civil engineering program at Buffalo and then eventually became provost and president. He was the director who started the Earthquake Engineering Center at Buffalo. But anyway, I went to Texas and interviewed, and after my wife and I looked these things over, Lehigh had a far better capability as far as experimental work than any place. I didn't see anything that attracted me to leave because Lehigh had the, the capabilities for my interests. Mm-hmm. My initial work then, which focused when I arrived there, was on high-strength bullet joints. And I eventually ended up writing a book, mm-hmm. which Ted uh, Higgins entered a lot of this because he was at the time head of engineering. And so there was the research, in those days it was called the uh, Research Council on Riveted and Bolted Structural Joints. Mm-hmm and eventually it's changed to just Research Council on Structural Joints. From TED, I had a doctoral student by the name of John Struick from the Netherlands, and uh, he, I had working on putting together this book, and uh, the two of us co-authored that book initially. One of my early PhD students um, was Joff Kulak. Oh, okay. Actually, he was my second. My first PhD student was Roger Schlutter, who was at Lehigh when I arrived and stayed there, but he was working in composite design. Because of VS, I became involved in, when VS went to work for the steel company, then he turned his consulting work, which he was doing in composite area, basically over to me. So I I was working then in two areas. Now, out of the test road, VS had a a major impact on steel research in this country. Joining Bethlehem Steel, he happened to be appointed to the AISI group that developed research money. Because in the early days, when plastic design started, Ted Higgins had convinced the AISI to give AISC the money to sponsor the research. But when VS joined between U.S. Steel and Bethlehem Steel, they more or less decided AISI would do their own research programming. VS then uh, actually got Ted Columbus started in load and resistance factor design because that came out of the experience at the actual road test. A lot of the things that we learned on the limit states fatigue being a serviceability limit state and the strength limit states came out of, of the knowledge that we obtained at the Asheville Road Test. Then I became secretary to the uh, Steel Bridge Committee of the Transportation Research In those days it was called the Highway Research Board. This was now in the 60s after I went back to Lehigh. And VS was a member of that committee and the committee developed the possibility of a research program in fatigue. I wrote a proposal to compete for that 
and I was successful in achieving that. And so that project started in 1967 when I essentially it was a whole series of projects over approximately 20 years mm -hmm. that were sponsored by the National Cooperative Highway Research Program. So Joff Kulak worked with me on bolted joints. Carl Frank was one of my first uh, students along with uh, Manfred Hirt, who is Swiss, and he went back to Switzerland, became a professor at the Ecole Polytech in Lausanne. So I was working then in several areas high-strength bolted joint and fatigue, which I started in 67. Now, when I started working in fatigue, I was told by many bridge engineers at the time that I was studying a non-problem. Really? They didn't really believe that bridges were going to have a fatigue problem. I remember particularly the bridge engineer of California, which was Art Elliott at the time, telling me I was just studying a non-problem. Well, in 1970, bridges started to develop cracks. And so that's when I got involved, not only from my laboratory work, but I started working with real problems in the fatigue area. Mm -hmm. About that time that we started that program, the individual who is often called the father of fracture mechanics, he was a physicist with a naval laboratory. He joined Lehigh as a faculty member at, at the age of 60. His name was George Irwin, and I became involved with George. I always had all my students take his course, and then I continued working with him almost until he passed away. He had to retire at Lehigh. In those days, people had to, when you reach 65, you had to retire. Oh. He moved back to, he had a home in uh, Maryland, near the University of Maryland. But I kept him actively involved as a consultant because he was a, an excellent teacher. It was unfortunate he had to terminate his academic career after only five years. Yeah. But it, uh, he provided an opportunity for people like Carl and Manfred Hirt and others to you know, talk to him, to learn from him. So we had a team. Now it was also when, when these cracks actually started, I knew that I needed to start working together in an interdisciplinary fashion with material scientists mm -hmm. and metallurgists in particular. People who knew more on a micro level than I knew. And that's when I became heavily involved over about nearly the rest of my career, you might say, with Alan Pence. Al was a professor of material science and, at? Uh, at Lehigh. At Lehigh. And he spent his career there, too. Okay. He had received a doctorate there. He, had, he was a Cornell graduate and had come to Lehigh and did a doctorate, became a faculty member. So he and I worked together for a significant period of time on different projects uh, that, I, that would come out from failure. I became more heavily involved in failures mm -hmm. at that point in time. I guess it was about 1970 I became involved with the Yellow Mill Pond bridges. Those were the first cover-plated bridges to start developing fatigue cracks. I got Pence involved with that and we did another project for the uh, National Cooperative Highway Research Program in which we were looking at ways to retrofit. So the early work led to specification changes. So the work that I initially started in 67 led to the changes that were adopted in the first in the AISC specification in which stress range 
Prior to that, fatigue was more like a black box. Engineers really didn't have an understanding of what it was. Mm -hmm. They didn't. It was an empirical solution. The people who were doing research knew a little about it, but the average engineer didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. And he hadn't really a full understanding. So I pushed on the basis of the work because at the test road I had learned about the advantage of incorporating statistics into experimental work. And because the test road was an experimentally based program that where you had different types of variables and you built different types of roads just like we built different types of bridges, different details. Then one of the reasons I was successful in getting the initial project underway is that I had put together a proposal based on my experience in using statistical designed experiments. The steel industry helped a great deal. Bethlehem Steel gave me a very good price on providing me test specimens because fatigue is a variable problem anyway. There's so many variables mm -hmm. that were potentially influencing fatigue strain. And so I designed the experiment design that became part then of the project. I designed this experiment so that I could test whether the type of steel made any difference. What was the critical stress conditions? Was it stress range or the maximum stress? At that point in 1965, the ASHTO, the specifications they had, had just adopted a design for fatigue based on limiting the maximum stress. And so that made it a very complex design problem. I had used maximum stress, minimum stress, stress range, type of detail, type of steel. Those were some of my controlled variables that I could do an statistical assessment of. And so we carried out more tests in that first initial program, over 200 specimens. And literally, from those tests, we conclusively proved that there really was no difference in what steel you had. Hmm. And we see the earlier specifications implied that if you had a higher strength steel, you had more fatigue resistance. That turned out to be false. We also found that it didn't make any difference what the maximum stress was. It was only the range of stress, which meant now you didn't have to design for the maximum stress, which included a dead load. All you need to worry about was the vehicle oh, okay. and the impact. So it simplified design and understanding. And, and in fact, AISC led the way in adopting that concept. Now, it was fought. There were a lot of people from the old school who thought this was the wrong way to go. But VS, because of his being on the specification committee at that time, because I didn't become a member of the specification committee until about 76, he believed in what we had found and helped push that against people like Bill Muncy, who was leading the Illinois group at the time who thought that they should stay with maximum stress. You know, some things just happen to fall out of the, the mix of things in that, that fashion. So as a result of that, I became sort of known as the father of the fatigue design criteria. Mm -hmm. In any event, then, as things continued to play out, fatigue became increasingly important because there's two types of problems that evolve from fatigue. One is those associated with the details that the engineer can do some calculations and resolve, but the other was secondary effects due to distortion. And that actually became the dominant kind of uh, fatigue cracking that occurred in the U.S. And that evolved out of World War II. The Germans and French 
and Belgians from early use of welded structures in the, I'd say, late 20s and early 30s found that some of the bridges they built fractured in cold weather. Mm -hmm. And so they assumed, because of the way they fractured, that it was due to welding stiffeners to the flange. They adopted a rule which was passed on to the U.S. that it would be bad practice to weld transfer stiffeners to the tension plant. Well, that became the source then of nearly, probably 80% of the steel bridges that were built on the interstate after the interstate construction started, which would have been in the late 50s, up until we started writing these. Because the first ASHTO specification that adopted stress range was an interim specification in 1974. So as a result, a lot of bridges got built with that rule in mind. And so then all these other cracks started to form. And then corrosion also became a role. That's why the I-95 Mianus River Bridge collapsed because of corrosion. It was a, a continuous bridge system with the hangers, uh, girder bridges, and the corrosion had forced the hanger plates toward the end of the pin until they developed a fatigue crack and it just, once it cracked, the bridge collapsed. Three people were killed because the collapse occurred at three o'clock in the morning. Mm. So there wasn't much vehicles, there were just a number of them that ran off into the water. As a result of that, I became then involved not only in fatigue, but also in fracture. The Federal Highway Administration, because of the collapse of the Silver Bridge, that's when mandated inspections were required. And then a lot of research that we subsequently did as, as well, beyond fatigue, focused on fracture, which is crack instability rather than stable crack growth. They're related very closely, but they're different phenomena. Mm -hmm. And that's when I also became more involved with Alan Pence. Uh, because we became involved with these failures and to have a better understanding than his knowledge of material and particularly the finite micro level mm -hmm. concepts of what was going on augmented and so we worked together as a team. We got involved with a jumbo section problem that happened. I got involved in that through Fazer Khan. Mm -hmm. Fazer Khan had a, a new building that he was constructing out in Portland. They started to develop cracks. When I got involved with that and went out and looked at that, I discovered that these cracks were originating in the core zone. They happened first out there, and then shortly after that, the failures occurred down in Orlando at the Orlando uh, Civic Center. They were constructing it, and they heard a very loud noise they thought was an explosion. They couldn't find anything until the next day they discovered one of these beams had fallen apart. So the people in Orlando contacted me to become involved in that, and then I discovered that you know, these cracks were forming actually from the fabrication, from the constraint conditions and the poor quality of the material. Mm -hmm. So again, I had Al Pence working together with me on this. We basically resolved, and if you would go to the Orlando Civic Center, you would see a lot of boulder joints that were put in place as a result of these welded joints that had cracks. Nearly every one had a crack, just that one of them had failed when they poured concrete on the roof which loaded it and then it failed. And then of course it surfaced everywhere where they had the, I got involved in St. Louis, I think in the Bell Telephone Building under construction there was problems. They were all around the country. And uh, these were these jumbo shapes? That's where the that jumbo shape. That had this problem shape. in, the, in yeah. the core area? 
So we, we identified the problem and then how you could work around it. And that led actually to improvement so in the quality mm-hmm. and the warning that you had to be careful. You could not weld in that zone or you were going to risk problems. So there were a lot of useful uh, tools that we provide the engineer. There were a lot of buildings in the New York City area that were under construction that had to have retrofits because we we discovered they had cracks that were developed during the fabrication process from that core area. By that time, I was a member of the specification committee too. We eventually resolved a means of how you prepared copoles for welds, how you welded these things together, and then how you could improve the material properties. And then the, the mills started to improve how they manufactured things. Mm-hmm. And so that led to many changes. And so Pence and I wrote a paper that AISC published in the proceedings on the jumbo section mm-hmm. problem. If we go back to Lehigh for a moment. Sure. Um, you're a member of what's known as the Lehigh Mafia. <laughs> right. <laughs> the group of people who did all the work decades ago on steel design and construction, much of which is still in use today. So what was it like to be involved in those activities? That well, it was, it was a stimulating time because we were very, we were young people then, obviously, a lot, a lot younger than I am now. <laughs> we were, had been students together, and then we had students that were under us. Uh, we became very close friends. So the Lehigh Mafia, we had a huge contingent of our doctoral students in Japan. There must have been 40 of them. And then we had those of us who were at either were at Lehigh or had left like Ted and gone elsewhere. But we were still a close-knit group mm-hmm. because we had worked together as students, helped each other on our projects. And that carried on after we became engaged ourselves as faculty members. And whenever we would travel abroad, we almost always had a meeting of the Lehigh students. Lynn Beadle led, I would say he was one who promoted that more than any others. Mm-hmm. The collegiality, uh, he was also a stickler for presentations so that all the Lehigh graduates who made oral presentations had to pass his scrutiny. <laughs> and they had to do the job right. He insisted on that. You will hear from many from that era that that was a very key thing in their career and learning how to put together a talk properly and say what you needed to say in a, a well-defined and well-ordered manner. Mm-hmm. He, he critiqued every student on their slides and things. So that's how that Lehigh Mafia label came about. And then also the 1964 steel design book by the Fritz engineering staff was the first comprehensive textbook on the landmark changes from the 1961 AISC specification. And you're listed as one of the authors. Right. Along with a very distinguished list of engineers. What can you tell us about some of these people and what it was like to be part of that group? Well, most of those were the people that were working in the specific chapter areas. They generally wrote up what they knew about their area, and that became a chapter. Beetle had organized that. Mm as one of the things. In fact, I started writing my chapter while I was a graduate student. I hadn't even finished my degree. And that was true of many of the other writers of the chapters. They were also students at the time. And then the faculty who were, Ted was a faculty member, Lee Wu Lu was a faculty member at the time. Of course, Beadle wrote several chapters. Lambert Tall, I think, was a faculty member at that time. So uh, those people wrote in their specialty area, whatever the particular chapter was. Mm -hmm. 
And so we put together that initial book, and then we revised it a second edition about 10 years later. I think it was 70, uh, in the 70s. Mm -hmm. The second edition came out. And then, of course, after about that period of time, everybody had distributed. There were few of the originals left. Mm -hmm. In the second edition, for example, I wrote the uh, bolted joint chapter as well as the welded joints because connections was one of my areas of specialty from my master's program. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when the AISC carried out a statistically designed experiment on weld strength, I was on the committee. Out of that came the series of studies that led to the design criteria for welds. And that was a statistically designed experiment. Speaking of Ted, we've, we've mentioned Ted Higgins a few times. Much of the research that went into that landmark 61 spec was done at Lehigh. Yes. And at that time, Ted was the director of engineering research for yeah. AISC, and Bill Millick was a research engineer there. So what was it like working with, with Ted? Oh, Bill? Ted was a great engineer. I always thought of him as a model to follow, even after he had retired and moved. He always had a continued interest in uh, what was going on. Mm -hmm. I, in my view, he was one of the better engineers AISC had. Mm -hmm. he, he knew the subject. He had interacted with engineers over decades. And, and then Bill Millick was of a similar vein. Bill, long after he retired from AISC, remained very active. Mm -hmm. He also was one who pushed a lot of the fatigue areas, too. And in fact, he wanted to change what we originally put in to follow the procedures and format that was being used by the Europeans. But even up, uh, I would say, until close to his death, he remained interested yes. and active. Yes, he was. Yeah. You talked about being a member of the uh, specification committee. Right. Um, you said you joined, you thought, in the 70s, 76. Yeah, so. so you've been on it for a long time. Yeah. Well, Ted has been on a few years more than I have. <laughs> Uh, and you're on a lot of other committees for a lot of other organizations as well. Why do you think this type of committee work is important? Well, I think as a, if a faculty member needs to have a foot in the reality of, of engineering. You can't just be in an ivory tower. <laughs> and you need to transfer the knowledge to the engineers. So I think you need to be involved. I think it's uh, almost essential that you be involved in changing and, and assisting with changes based on the knowledge you gain. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can do that is you have to get involved with these committees. I've been involved not only with AISC, I became a member of the railroad, ARIMA. I've been involved with that too since the 70s. And, you know, I was instrumental then in, in moving the fatigue specification into that and others areas and bolted joints and things like that that mm -hmm. I had into the railroad. And then I became more involved too with their problem as a result mm -hmm. of that. Some of the same problems that highways were seeing started to appear in, in railroad bridges mm -hmm. from distortion because of not properly dealing with diaphragms and things that cause this out of plane things that people didn't consider to be a problem. Uh, and the railroads tend to be more conservative, have always traditionally had more conservative and were slower to change. But when they did change them and adopted welding, they made the same mistakes because they adopted those same processes. Mm -hmm. And things keep popping up. I've been involved with a number of mass transit systems. Within the last two or three years, uh, anchor bolts started to become a problem from cantilevered 
steel pier caps on columns and I, as a basis of getting involved in that, then I have initiated a change to the ARIMA specifications to deal with it. So, I mean, that's why you need to have that involvement to make yeah. sure. I mean, it was part of the reason I went to Switzerland in 74 to transfer knowledge to the Swiss steel specification. So I prepared a steel specification that was substantially different than what the Swiss has. And, and that started and took place in 74 to when it was finally adopted by the country was probably around 79. And then of course I first went to China at their uh, invitation in 1985. And I took my youngest son and my wife. Everybody else was gone from home and married at that point. And so my youngest son was 15. I spent seven weeks lecturing around China mm -hmm. on high-strength bolted joints and fatigue. Those are the two primary areas in all the major cities from Shanghai to Beijing to Xi'an to Chongqing to Wuhan and to Guilin and then back to Shanghai before I returned home. As a result of that experience, my youngest son is now a professor of Asian studies Really, and is fluent in Chinese as well as being able to read and write it. Wow. So he's on the faculty of Nazareth College up in Rochester, New York. Wow. And it all was because I exposed him to uh, that culture back in uh, mm -hmm. 85. You are a world-renowned bridge expert and have made so many major contributions in the field of fracture mechanics and fatigue, as well as many others. So in your opinion, what do you think is your greatest contribution to the engineering community? <laughs> I think of my professional, my family is probably my greatest. Well, of course. But I would think uh, the work that I have done in fatigue and implementing it here in the U.S. as well as elsewhere in the world has uh, probably been the major contribution that I've done. I would think that. And I guess its origin actually started at the actual road test. Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, those, those uh, very early beginnings. That was very early, but I had never been exposed to fatigue prior to working on the steel bridges there that developed cracks. Mm -hmm. And it was an intriguing area, one that I was able to pursue. There are rumors that you actually worked undercover for the CIA. <laughs> well, that are you allowed to that rumor that? originated, <laughs> there was a reason. I was invited to go to a conference on fracture mechanics and materials in Hungary. I went along with two other Americans. One was George C. and his wife. George was very active in fracture mechanics. Uh, he had spent his career at Lehigh. And there was another fellow from, I think, the University of Wisconsin. We went to Budapest for this conference. Well, this was 68, of course, Hungary was under Russia, more or less. There was Russian troops. Mm -hmm. The Russians were not allowed to mingle with us except at the conference and during planned social events. So they were shipped to wherever their uh, compound was that the military was in. They were not allowed to stay with us 24 hours a day. Whereas the Hungarians were, and especially the guy who had organized this, who was a professor of materials, they were quite gracious. You know, we've got a long line. Well, for some reason during that trip, my luggage tag ended up in an Englishman's luggage. <laughs> so obviously they'd searched our luggage some way, and my tag ended up in his. So the CIA came to visit me one day, 
<laughs> to find out, well, how did this happen? <laughs> so that's how that rumor was started. I got a call that they wanted to come talk to me and about this trip to Hungary. And that it came out that this Englishman, when he got home, opened his bag and there was my name <laughs> in his luggage. Uh -huh. I guess whatever their CIA is, M5 or whatever they call it, must have contacted the CIA mm -hmm. to follow up on this. And so that's how that rumor got started. Or that's a really good cover story. <laughs> <laughs> you've talked about a lot of your traveling, that you gave lectures and seminars uh, in a lot of different places, and you've been a visiting professor in other countries. Is there anywhere that you haven't been that you'd still like to travel to? Well, I've never been to Africa. Okay. I, the closest I've got to the African continent was Malta, and uh, that was because I was given an award by the International Association of Bridge and Structural Engineers mm -hmm. for my contributions. They made the award in, in Malta, so Ted happened to go to the same meeting, and we met. <laughs> we had a good time going around Malta. That's the closest I've ever gotten to that part of the world. So Africa's uh, still on your list. Well, at this point, I probably will, because we're scheduled to take a, uh, my, of my sons, I have three sons and a daughter. My daughter is married to a Presbyterian pastor, and they live in, in Ohio. Well, he's applied for a, a grant and was given it to sort of take this summer off as a sabbatical and as he had to detail what he was going to do. And one of them is a, a cruise in the Mediterranean. Mm. So in the month of August for two weeks, my wife and I are going to join my daughter and her family on this uh, cruise oh, in the lovely. Mediterranean. So I finally, I've been to Greece, I've been to Italy, been to most of the European countries, mm -hmm. England, Scotland. In fact, my second son has, has a, I, two of my sons are pastors too. Wow. Yeah, but they're Methodists, as, as I am. But my oldest son, he became the first one. He went to seminary, and he's a Lehigh graduate, and he went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. And then my second son actually got a degree in engineering physics from Lehigh. His interest was in artificial intelligence. And then after he graduated, he went to Israel on uh, just uh, and travel of Europe. But he spent a year living in Israel, six months on a kibbutz and six months with a Jewish Christian family mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. And then when he came back, he decided to go to seminary. And then furthermore, after he was married and had his second child, he decided to get a doctorate because he has an interest in the intersection of religion and science. That is interesting. So he went to the University of Edinburgh, got a doctorate. He now is a pastor in Pennsylvania, but and he teaches at a couple of seminaries. Mm -hmm. And he's written a book, which was his dissertation. So I have I have a lot of pastors <laughs> associated with my family. Only one who's not that's the one who's a, a teaching. So my daughter's married to one, and then the two sons are both Methodist pastors. Wow. Today. <laughs> even though he had started out as an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny, he started out as an engineer and that's where he ended up. You were on Oahu on December 7th, 1941? Yes, I was 10 years old. We had just moved uh, in summer of 41 
I'm the oldest of 11 children. Wow. <laughs> My father worked for the Corps of Engineers, and he had been assigned as a dredge master to Hawaii. During the summer of 41, the family, at the time there were five children. My mother and five children, I think an uncle, drove us to the west coast, and we took the boat to Hawaii. Well, we lived in government housing. It was Hickam housing, mm -hmm. which is Hickam Field is right, right next to Pearl Harbor. This Hickam housing uh, that we lived in was, uh, it was only 100 yards to the main runway from the house, so we were right, right there. Comes December 7th, I happened to be in the bathroom with my father, and this plane flew right, wow, all this shooting was going on, but we thought it was maneuvers at first. Uh -huh. Uh, but then this Japanese plane flew right over our house, strafing some of the uh, B-24s that were trying to take off. My dad saw the red balls on the wings and said, we were at war. That's how we, wow. I was exposed. So they took us and evacuated us that evening to the mountains. And so I was out of school uh, until probably May because, you know, they, at that time they thought maybe the Japanese were going to land. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when we did finally move back to our home, we had to have blackout. All the windows had to have a special thing to prevent uh, light mm -hmm. and, uh, because we were so close to Hickam Field. Yeah. So that's how I ended up in Hawaii. My parents made the decision to stay. We stayed in Hawaii until 1945. And then my dad had to go on to Tinian and Saipan because he was a dredge master and he had to go clean out harbors. Mm. And when he did that, then we went back to the U.S. Wow. Although I was born in Missouri, in what was at the time Ansel, Missouri, which became Scott City, we returned there, probably never lived there a significant length of time, because my dad worked in Maine, and he was on, in Passamaquoddy, Maine, working on flood control. Mm -hmm. And we lived in New York, in Canisteo, New York. He was working on flood control there, too just before we moved to Hawaii. Since he was, had gone on, then we moved back to my grandmother, my mother's mother, and lived in Scott City then. I was, uh, let's see, in 45, I would have been 14 when we came back. And then I finished high school. And then I essentially left Scott City. And summers I worked on the, the Mississippi River on dredges. Really? And then for three or four months I worked on moving oil up and down the Mississippi River and the Ohio Rivers on a towboat uh, as a deckhand. And uh, I had acquired Tankerman's license. In other words, I was qualified to load and unload fuel. Mm -hmm to these fuel barges, and that's, uh, I worked on the uh, Mississippi River then for about six months before I went into the military. Mm -hmm. So well, you've done just about everything. <laughs> <laughs> it was when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> so you have won almost every engineering award that exists. <laughs> just to read a few, you've been elected to the National Academy of Engineering. You've received the prestigious John Fritz Medal and the ASCE Opal Lifetime Achievement in Education Award, and many others. Was there one award that meant more to you than the, any of the others, <laughs> or one that you considered to be the biggest honor or achievement in your career? Well, it's tough, I guess. Being elected to the Academy was an honor, but probably the John Fritz Medal is the one that's uh, most infrequent because it's given by the original five founding 
professional organizations, you know. So as a result, you're only uh, every four or five years is someone in civil engineering elected mm -hmm. to receive that. So I suppose as far as uh, scarcity or the probability of being selected, it probably is among the most prestigious. But I appreciated all of them. They've all been <laughs> fun to, well, Ted has been, he and I, maybe that's the only one he hasn't won this. <laughs> <laughs> and all the others, he's, uh, we both have been T.R. Higgins lectures. Uh -huh. We've each been an Opal Awardee. We were each elected to the Academy. He was elected several years before I was. Ted, Ted and I have followed very close careers to some degree mm -hmm. in different areas, but they were similar in the rewards we received and in our professional work. Well, and I interviewed Ted last year for a podcast, <laughs> and he had a lot of nice things to say about you in his interview. So when I was writing your questions, I went to him to get some, <laughs> some insider scoop of what I was preparing for this. And he said that you were a remarkable engineer who can cut through the solution of a problem where others have been unable to get anywhere. He sees the forest and not the individual trees. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that's 100% true. <laughs> but I think it's because of what I decided in the end to focus on, which was fatigue and fracture, ended up to be one of the major, major challenges of serviceability and, and safety. Because of that, I've had the opportunity to become involved in major failures and even include, well, AISC asked me to serve on the World Trade Center investigation yes, because yes. of that. And that's because of the experience I've had in working with major failures right. from the collapse of the Hartford Coliseum where I worked as a consultant for Bethlehem Steel and the collapse of the hotel walkway in Kansas, Kansas City. City and uh, all of those are related to what I researched and uh, as I happen to be active in my research program in areas that became critical. Yes. Was it the luck of the draw? <laughs> Who knows how you would say the opportunities were provided. Mm -hmm. So I'm still pretty active yes. um, in consulting and now I no longer have a, am an active researcher in that sense, but I do a lot of consulting work. Right now I'm working on the bridge up in Minneapolis, that footbridge in which the cable stay broke. In fact, I have to try to finish that report in the next <laughs> week or two. You're under the gun. <laughs> I'm under the gun a lot. Well, uh, I've got one final question for you. Um, having had such an amazing and prestigious career, is there one accomplishment that you're most proud of? I guess the one accomplishment is getting started in a way and making the decision to focus on fatigue and fracture, which led me down this path. Yes. Its origin was far back in my career because I'd been in the military for three years. When I went back to school at Washington University, the majority of the students at Washington U were, were vets mm. at that time. Only a few were not, and most of us had been in the military. We were driven, all of us. I was married, or well, didn't have any children at that point, but you know, when you serve the military and you, uh, you have been married and you have responsibility, you're more focused. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can see that with my own children, how they, when they've gone to college and how they've reacted is much different than I did because uh, I was more driven by getting the job done and doing it as well as I could. And I've enjoyed the career that I had as a result. 
Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you, John. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> You've gotten a lot of material here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.